0: So tonight, is that echoing a lot? No? Only to me, I guess. It's okay for you guys. I'm like in a vibratory tunnel here. Uh, A little bit for you. All right. (laughs) I have to get over it. Um, So tonight I want to talk about Sakaya Ditti, which is another aspect of anatta, which means really usually translated as identity view or personality view. <clears throat> and I don't know if you remember from last week, it's not a test, but where I uh, s- quoted the scripture, the sutta that Ajahn Buddha Dasa quoted about <clears throat> all that one needs to know is having heard that nothing is worth clinging to, one directly knows everything. Having heard this, one fully understands everything. And then Bhikkhu Bodhi's note means he does not cling, once he fully understands everything, he does not cling either by way of craving and of views. So last week I talked mostly about the clinging, the craving, creates sense of self. Tonight I want to focus a little more on views. Of course at the bottom of views is craving and clinging. That should go without saying, but I'll say it but I want to talk more in terms of how the views come to be and how we get lost in views, particularly Sakaya Ditti, personality view. I like the way that Sayadaw Ulakana defined this one time. Um, He defined Sakaya as the stream of Nama Rupa, Nama Rupa being mind and form, name and form, Basically, the five aggregates that, in the way the Buddha describes a human being, make up our experience. Now, the aggregates of form, and then the mental aggregates of vedana, feeling tone, perception, sankhara, which is all the different mental formations, including intention, and consciousness. So he said, Sakaya is just this stream of ever changing nama rupa, the six sense objects, really and the consciousness of them. And identity view happens when any aspect in any moment of this stream of Nama Rupa is clung to or identified with as being me or mine. As you can imagine, this happens all the time. It's a mistaken view of this compound, ever-shifting process of Nama Rupa, of name and form, Uh, mistaken view of it as self, as me or mine. So what do we mean by view? How does a view form? So we pick up, or there's just a stream, for example, of seeing, hearing, smelling, tasting, touching, mental experience, awareness of a consciousness of it. That's just going on and on and on and on. And when any particular one of that is kind of clung to through grasping, much as I said last week, any of that nama rupa, in that moment, it's like we pick it up, carry it with us, with a perception of what it is, we think about it, we you know get it more complicated, we complicate, we remember, we associate, and all of these are mental formations that turn into the thoughts, turn into a view, a description, a giving meaning to something. And then we take that description, that view as being true, cling to it. And this, I mean, can be very simple, happening all the time in any aspect of our mental, physical experience. So like today, I've had a thing going on with my shoulder. So I went to the physical therapist and she's doing her thing fine. It's very nice. Came home and then this other shoulder started hurting. And I could just... In that moment, I could see my mind going, no, we so much don't want this to be happening. And it really went there. And then as I could see, I didn't actually go there too much, but that was, the, that was the, the, the form, the physical experience, unpleasant physical experience. And then the thought, no, you know this can't be happening. It's supposed to be getting better, not going to the other shoulder. And then the thoughts and the memories that make up this whole Sakaya Ditti sense of self personality i could see them starting you know it's always something it's this shoulder it's that shoulder it's my back it's my knees it's like ever since i was 30 there's always been something wrong with this body and, and how, you know and i could just i could just see it going along with the appropriate emotions now that could go without clinging to it, you know what I mean? It could just kind of be running and it could just be aware of, oh yeah, that's thinking. But as soon as there was that, no, we so much don't want this to be happening. And then the whole story, the thoughts, the emotions, and the believing that view, I'm this kind of a person with this kind of a body, this is my history. And right there you have basically the history of your whole life, so it would seem. The thing with views, though, and this we really need to notice, is how limited they are. Because, of course, that's not a true and accurate reflection of my whole life. It feels like it. It seems like it in the moment. And in terms of Sakaya Ditti personality view, the point is really, it really felt like me. One solid me going back to, you know, whenever, the time I was born, having to deal with this particular situation. So, I mean, obviously, that's not rocket science. That happens all the time. i want to give you another definition, the way Ajahn Samedo talks about Sakaya Ditti. He talks about a couple of ways, and I like the, the way he talks about it informally a lot. He says, it can be, you can both experience it in a subtle way or a gross way. The subtle is something I referred to last week. It's just that subtle sense of me here now. Not even a specific thought. Not a specific memory like I'm talking about with my shoulder, but just that subtle sense of me. You know, if you had to put more words to it, it could be the one who is mindful. The one who is observing. You know, the one who is making choices. All those thoughts we get into. The one who is thinking that's already going further. It can be much more subtle. Just that felt sense of me. Or on a, a more gross and a complex level, Ajahn Samedo talks about it as really um, what we would classically in regular speech call our personality. Our ideas about our behavior patterns, our memories, Our cultural identifications, you know, who we think of ourselves in terms of uh, nationality, gender, race, family history, all that kind of stuff. Um, Our moods, our particular personal history, like, you know, I'm a person with limited energy, I'm tired, I can't do any more than this. That kind of stuff comes up all the time, doesn't it? And all the innumerable conditions that are constantly changing, but we don't often notice how much they're changing. So for example, that I'm tired. I'm a person with limited energy. I can only do so much. As if that is the experience every single moment of every single day, you know? Is anything that we're saying is me. I'm a person who has a debilitating disease. Is that the actual experience every single moment of every single day and night? Or is it sometimes a physical experience, sometimes a thought, sometimes a mood, sometimes completely absent from the present moment experience? This is just something to hold as a question. The ideas we get into, I'm someone who could never really be free. I don't even know why I'm practicing because it's clearly hopeless for me. That's a personality view which we then believe and then that belief can actually color our succeeding thoughts and how we act. Again, Ajahn Somdet talking about how on one level we create ourselves with our thoughts, right? All these examples I gave is a perception like my perception of pain, then another perception of now my other shoulder, what's she doing, and then all the memories, all the thoughts. We're creating ourselves through our thoughts. I'm this, I'm that, I was this, I will be that, I've always been and I always will be. And this is what I love Ajahn Sameda says. He says, we cannot create an ultimately peaceful self Not that we ever stop trying, but we cannot create an ultimately peaceful self. The sense of self is intrinsically non-satisfying, non-peaceful. I think that's just an interesting idea to contemplate and see if we can really look at it that way rather than, well, this particular self is unsatisfying and not peaceful, but if I could rearrange it and get it right, then, and how much of one's meditation, at times, really, when I come down to it, is about getting myself to be a better self, so things are more okay. But this sense of you know telling ourselves stories, making it up as we go along, creating an intrinsically unpeaceful, unsatisfying self, is based literally on inaccurate perception which leads to wrong view. Sakaya ditti is one aspect of wrong view. I love that translation, ditti as view. You know, the the Eightfold Path, the first step of the Eightfold Path is is wise view, right view. Because to me, it's kind of a literal translation. We're seeing accurately or we're perceiving inaccurately. Sakaya Ditti, wrong view is based on inaccurate perceptions and interpretation of our experience. Nisargadatta Maharaj. Discovery cannot come as long as you cling to the familiar. As long as you have all sorts of ideas about yourself, you know yourself through the mist of these ideas. To know yourself. As you are, you must give up all ideas. You cannot imagine the taste of pure water. You can only discover it by abandoning all flavorings. In some way, what Sakaya Ditti is, is we keep on putting all different kinds of flavorings in our ideas about ourselves, coloring our perception, Throwing out a whole description and then taking that description to be the truth. And completely ignoring or overlooking the fact that five minutes later we have a completely different description, completely different set of ideas, and believing that to be the truth. And believing both of them to be me. You know, we just kind of don't quite, we don't quite look at what we're doing, why we're believing it. Wrong view. So, how a view is formed. There's perception, sanya, which is just the recognition of a particular sense contact. Like if I hit the bell and you hear it and recognize that's the bell, that's perception. Perception leads to how we think about something, thinking. And thinking then can coagulate kind of form itself into one big, solid glob of a view. This is how things are. An example, this is a story a friend told me. She was on retreat in um, a big old house in Switzerland a few years ago. And um, these big old wooden houses without much uh, insulation, really kind of creaky and noisy, like, you know, how once in a while, once once... Once a day there's a creek outside here and it's like oh my god a creek there should god forbid be any noise in, in this meditation room but in these old houses it's creek 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 all over and she said the meditation hall was upstairs and right below it was the room that was used for walking meditation and it was her first retreat she's swiss in switzerland and on this following the schedule it was the sitting time and she was sitting and getting into the middle of the sitting, starting to feel, oh, I'm really getting with the breath now, I'm really getting quiet, starting to get nice. And then she heard, you know, creak, creak, creak. Oh, somebody's walking downstairs. It's making such a noise. And it was just, it kept going, it kept going. And she said, how can they do that? It's not the walking period, it's the sitting period. We all agree to follow the regulations here and... She wouldn't mind if I said this, but she's Swiss. You definitely follow timetables. You do it as you're supposed to do it. And she was getting really worried. ruining my concentration. I was finally getting somewhere on this retreat. here. Really, they're completely wrong. This is the right way to do it. So it went from perception to thinking about what was happening to a view of, I'm right, they're wrong. This is how things are supposed to be done. And then she said, okay, well... Let me just come back and feel my breath again. She felt her breath, and as she felt her breath, just being there, she realized she was leaning against the wall. And whenever she breathed, her back went out into the wall and made it creak. And that was the sound that she was hearing. So, wrong perception, inverted perception, leads to all kinds of thoughts, of view that we totally believe and get emotional about and act on, then the correct perception, well, as you can imagine, all those thoughts went away, right? She really couldn't hold on to any more how bad that person is walking. I mean, it's gone. It's free. I mean, she could have added another set of thoughts about what a stupid jerk she was and then got into hating herself for always, you know, jumping. You know, that's another thing which isn't accurate either. But you see what I mean? if the, if the perception is inaccurate, but we don't recognize that, and the thoughts that follow from it we take to be real, and then the thoughts form into a view and we already believe that, we maybe never even know anymore what the original perception was, and then we're, we're off and running. Right? This is basically, moment to moment, a very simplistic way of describing how Sakaya Ditti gets created. In our mind stream, moment to moment, it's of course not a steady state thing. It's not like you're sitting here with a solid personality that maybe somehow you're gonna change to something else and then you'll be better. It's being created, moment to moment. So according to the Buddha, I want to use some suttas references tonight. According to the Buddha, he talks about how we practice self-identification, how in the moment we practice creating sakaya Ditti, and also ways we can practice that lead to the cessation of sakaya Ditti. So first, one one set definition. This is you know it's a little a little fiddly you know but i just i want to just put it out there because it's the way the buddha talks about it he he says how the creation of sakaya ditti in any particular moment when an uninstructed worldling basically an unenlightened normal person in any particular moment there's four different ways that one could regard form or any of the other five, of the other four aggregates to create the sense of self. So he says in any moment, one regards form as self, like regarding the body as self, and the commentarial um, example of this is that form and self would be indistinguishable like the flame, if you have the flame and the color of the flame of a candle, you can't separate the two. That would be regarding form as self. Another way is regarding self as possessing form. These are subtle, but they're different ways we relate. So that would be like as if you were taking the mind or mentality as self and as possessing form the way a tree has a shadow. The third one is regarding form as in self. So that would be like um, the self is the formless, the mind, and that uh, form is within that, the way the scent is within a flower. And the fourth one is self as in form, which would mean that the formless is like a self located within form, as if the self was a little jewel inside a box. You see what I mean? They're a little fiddly. You don't need to remember that. I just like to say it because it's slightly different angles that lead to the inaccurate perception of self in any relationship of that to form, either being form, having form, within form, forms within self. And then he says the same formula for Vedana, feeling tone, for perception, for all the volitional formation sankaras, and for consciousness itself. And then he goes on to describe how that brings us suffering and agitation. How bhikkhus is their agitation through clinging? And here he goes through that same thing about um, an un- Basically, an unlearned, unawakened person regards form as self or self in form, the whole thing I just said. That form of his changes and alters. With the change and alteration of form, his consciousness becomes preoccupied with the change of form. Can you relate to that? Just the slightest change of form, and the consciousness becomes preoccupied with the change of form agitation and a constellation of mental states born of preoccupation with the change of form remain obsessing his mind. Because his mind is obsessed, he is frightened, distressed, and anxious, and through clinging he becomes agitated. I love that because I think it's just such a straight-out description Of what the mind does, well, my mind does all day long. A little twinge in my shoulder, the mind becomes, you know, obsessed with the change of form, a whole constellation of emotions and thoughts, it gets agitated, there's anxiety, and then, you know, it stops hurting, the mind forgets all about it and goes on to something else and starts the same process all over again, you know? And it might not be about form. It might be about a thought. Oh, I'm feeling so so agitated. And before I was so calm. And how did this restlessness get into my practice? You see, it's just the same thing. It may not be form. It may be a mood. It may be a a feeling tone. We do that over and over and over. This is the creation of Sakaya Ditti when we don't recognize it in such a way that one is afflicted in body and afflicted in mind. This is Bhikkhu Bodhi. He swallows these ideas with craving and views and takes his stand upon them and grasps hold of them. Really, that's it. You know, we take our stand. You know, we fight to the death. This is what's happening, you know. I really am a this and that kind of person. My body really is this. It really is my body. It just so hard to see through the misperception the thinking and the views so our practice really is to cultivate accurate wise right view i mean obviously that's the whole practice of mindfulness it's what we always say to just meet experience as it is, connected, without having preconception, without confusing our ideas about the experience for the experience. But we can't make, you know, and we've all tried, ad nauseum, we can't make the right perception arise just because we want it. Have you ever noticed that? We can't make the right view come. We can think in our mind, I know that I'm identified here with these thoughts. But that doesn't really do a lot of good, does it? I mean, it doesn't really let go of the clinging because the clinging's there because we're not really recognizing accurately. So the shift of, of perspective, and again, like I say, we can't make it happen, but I'm sure you, I know, I absolutely know, You all know, over and over, kind of the the mystery of that moment when that shift happens. For example, I'll I'll just make up another particular story. There's an unpleasant sound, there's aversion. Just like my friend, it's bothering one's practice, one gets annoyed. And at some point in there, one's taking some part of that to be me or mine. Maybe it's the annoyance. Maybe it's the anger. And then the memories, I'm such an angry person. This is my personality. It's because of X, Y, and Z reasons back to when I was three. I understand it, but this is who I am. And even when we try to say, okay, anger, it's really okay. Anger, anger. I can just be with anger. That's okay. You know? We know the rap, but it's not really working because at some point, We're not seeing that view that really this is who I am, an angry person. Or the anger is mine, you know, sort of like the shadow of the tree. I'm not the anger, but somehow it's mine. Some way that there's that Sakaya Ditti, that personality view. Or we even go to the space of that it's okay, I'm really equanimous, I'm just with the anger. And you really are equanimous, but still you're the person who's equanimous. You're the person. And, and you can feel. As Sumedha says, there's no self that the thoughts can create, that our experience can create, that's really ultimately peaceful. So even being the equanimous person, okay, so I have this history of anger, that's okay. It isn't really ultimately freeing. And somewhere back in there, we know it, you know somewhere there's that feeling of still being kind of glitched up. And then what I'm going to say, we all know that shift that happens, sort of like magic, what we call insight, that aha moment where somehow magically the clinging to the view, the belief in the view just releases. And it absolutely goes, that shift of perspective, that real shift from I'm an angry person or I'm the, an angry person being a quantumist or whatever in particular, to just, oh, the way Semedo says, anger's like this. Not my anger. Equanimity's like this. Not my equanimity. No identification. No need to relate it to past or future. No need to make any story whatsoever. No need to move away. No need to move into. No need to fix. Just the, oh. Anger's like this. Just a sankara arising and passing. And it's so, as people say, it's so obvious, so simple, so peaceful. Why the heck do we get caught up again? That's to me the big question of spiritual practice. Why, for the love of God, do we get caught up again when it's so peaceful? So obviously free. It's kind of a shift from being the personality to being the knowing. That's the way Ajahn Sumedho talks. I like it a lot. Nothing has to change. It's not about fixing the personality, but it's kind of a, a shift of, of loyalty, maybe. You know, so being so loyal to me being the angry person me being anything. Oh, Anger like this. Nothing to refer back to. Being the knowing. That moment of insight, that moment where the perception shifts from that inaccurate, upside-down perception, you know, of perceiving any arising experience as being mere mine is one of the inverted perceptions that the buddha talks about seeing anything coming and going as mere mine and it's one of the most subtle and pervasive i would say and so what shifts in really not putting our loyalty so much into our sakaya ditti into our ideas about ourselves what shifts is Oh, we just recognize more accurately. And that's not something we can make happen, but it happens through steady, non-clinging attention. It's just like those... um, The example I always use is like those magic eye um, visual little games. You know what I mean? they, They used to be very popular, where they have books of them, just a page of two or three colors graphic art with no, um, what do you say? It doesn't have any kind of, oh, my mind isn't coming up with the word. It's just design. You know, there's, there's nothing uh, realistic about it at all. And if you look at it very steadily, but without clinging, without focusing, without looking for, you just have to look very steadily and softly how suddenly uh, a particular image will jump out, you know, and it'll be, it'll look as though it's 3D, that's part of the magic thing, and the other part is where before you just saw little yellow and blue squiggles, little yellow and blue shapes, suddenly there's dinosaurs or hockey players or UFOs or whatever, and you really see it. Now, it was there all the time, right? You didn't create it by doing something, you just allowed it to emerge by steady, non-conceptual attention. When you go back and look hard, it goes away. Or if you look away and look back, it's gone, right? But it's still there. Did it really go anywhere? It's still there. Both ways of perceiving are still there. It's sort of like that. When we've been perceiving something as me or mine, my anger, my history, my story, and so it's oh, it's just this all the dynamics might still be there. You could call up the same memories, there's the same physical sensation, you might still be experiencing anger, but that view, the thoughts and views leading to this is who I am, my personality, are just gone. So that shift of perspective is really what we're talking about when we talk about insight shift from being the personality to being the knowing. I like the way Krishnamurti describes that quality of looking. When you look totally, you will give your whole attention, your whole being, everything of yourself, your eyes, your ears, your nerves you will attend with complete self-abandonment. And then there is no room for fear, no contradiction, and therefore no conflict. You attend with complete self-abandonment. Basically, there's no room for self. It's just what there is. So how do we keep getting kind of tripped, kind of seduced back into identity view, into self-view, into perception of any aspect of experience as self? How can we practice not to create this? First one thing, another thing from Samedo that I found really interesting. This is a retreat I sat with him talking about how we... He said... In in thirty years, he's been a monk over thirty years, and he's been teaching Westerners for you know many many years. And he said, um, in his this is his opinion, but in his opinion, he thinks that one of the biggest hindrances for he said Westerners, but really you know people with kind of our materialistic upbringing type of mind, scientific type of mind, he sees self doubt as our biggest hindrance. Self doubt in terms of trusting our insights into awareness in terms of trusting the real liberating power of awareness and he sees the cause of this self-doubt of the power of awareness partly because our personalities here are so strong and our belief and reliance on our personalities is so strong even as much as we may not like our particular personality, he says, in a way, it's like our refuge. It's the thing we absolutely believe. The personality, he says, is so often our reference point for who we are, for what things mean, and I would say ditto for our thoughts, which are what's creating our personality. And so we get caught back into our personality, believing it, reacting to it, trying to fix it, you know, relating to it over and over and over. There's a story that just came to my mind that uh, Steve Armstrong tells, and I've seen it too when I I was in Burma, you put your shoes out, you know, your your shoes out when you go into the meditation hall. And he said he came out once and he had a really very nice pair of sandals, of slippers, which would stand out with all the kind of old rubbery, corroded flip-flops And he came out, and uh, a monk, I guess a Burmese guy, just as Steve came out of the hall, this guy was putting on Steve's slippers about to walk away. And Steve just kind of said, oh, what? And the guy just said, oh, well, you know, left him and went away. He wasn't upset about it at all. Now, for us, well, maybe not for you guys. For me, first of all, if I was doing something like that, I would be incredibly furtive about it, you know, trying to hide, check it out, make sure. And if I got caught, where my personality would go with that. You know, it'd be all about me and how I felt and, you know, either way. And for this guy, just, oh, well, well I guess I won't take him and go away and no, no problem. You know, the personality and who I am wasn't like the center of the world. And I don't know about you guys, but in here, this personality is a lot of times the center of the world. And it's a pretty limited, you know, up and down cockamamie world, I'll tell you. Why do we choose to make our personality the center of the world? I don't know. I mean, maybe you know somebody with a perfect personality. (laughs) I don't. Nothing personal. (laughs) I didn't mean anybody here. (laughs) See? Don't we right away think it's me? It's just stuff happening. Okay. (laughs) Okay. Where was I? Uh, right. So, another sutta from the Buddha, someone comes to him and says, Venerable Sir, how should one know, how should one see, for the view of identity, Ditti, to be abandoned? Now, this isn't going to be anything big that you haven't heard before, but that's no reason not to listen to it. So (laughs) he says, Bhikkhu, when one knows and sees the I as impermanent, identity view is abandoned. And of course, he goes through with all the six senses, but I'll just go through with the I. Then he says, when one knows and sees forms, in other words, there's the eye and there's what the eye sees, objects of sight. When one knows and sees the forms as impermanent, view of identity is abandoned. When one knows and sees eye consciousness, that moment of knowing, when eye and form come together and there's the consciousness, that moment of knowing seeing, when one sees that as impermanent, the view of self is abandoned. When one knows and sees eye contact as impermanent, when one knows and sees whatever feeling tone, Vedana, arises with eye contact as condition as impermanent, the view of self is abandoned. And then he goes through the same thing with the ear, with smell, with taste, with body and tactile phenomena, with the mind and mental phenomena. So that's that's pretty much everything, and that's a that's a high bar, right? But we don't have to sit here and go, "I have to see everything as impermanent all the time." But to have the uh, to have the contemplation, the idea kind of in the back of our mind, of the power of the perception of a Nietzsche, of impermanence. He's basically saying here that one one perceives these aspects of our experience seeing, eye contact, the feeling tone, the form, the eye itself, as impermanent, when that perception of impermanence is accurately perceived, the view of self, or in that moment, the sense of self, the personality view, is basically not created in that moment. You could say it's abandoned, but it's really more that it's not created. So this is, again, this inverted perception that the Buddha talks of so much, where we have such a deep habit To perceive what is impermanent, what is constantly changing, to perceive it as permanent. To perceive what is not self as self. To perceive what is inherently unsatisfying as satisfying as capable of giving us happiness. And so this is something I'm saying it, it's a thought. We can think of it. That's a concept. But the concept won't really help us abandon the personality view, the construction of sense of self. Because on an intellectual level, impermanence, maybe even sense of personality view, but certainly impermanence is pretty understandable, isn't it, on an intellectual level. Not too many people would would really argue that you know, eye contact is permanent or even that my eye is permanent, you know, because we can all at least give um, lip service to the idea that however solid I seem, I know at one point I was born and at another point I'll die. However solid this experience of anger and this personality view seems Even I know that I go through different moods through the day, I even know that. But what we're actually perceiving in the moment may not at all jibe with this idea, well, I know it's impermanent. We can say that. But what we don't recognize, something I heard the Dalai Lama say once in a teaching I went to, he said, you know, when we talk about the perception of Anicca, of impermanence. We may think that we understand it, that we can really see things arise. They last for a while, they go away. Arising persistence, going away, and you think, well, yeah, I really understand impermanence. But he said, no. There's no things exist for a while in between arising and passing away. There is no steady state. Permanence, experience, is in constant flux, constant flux. There is no little stability in between the moments of arising and passing, and that's what we don't often really let in through our perception. You know, it's too radical. It's too unsettling. You know, and it gives rise, you know, we start thinking, well, if everything's impermanent, how can I do this? If there's no, you know steady state at all. How can I get up and walk out of here? Who's walking out of here? If it's not the same person who walked in here, who's, you know, we go into all that stuff. This is the same as the magic eye. It's the same as no self. It's not that things are permanent until we allow the perception of impermanence and then suddenly everything goes into constant flux. It's not that if you allow in the perception of impermanence, you can't find your feet anymore. You know, it's not that everything's just arising and passing in molecules and, you know, you can't find your mouth when you're trying to eat. You know? Things are impermanent. There's not even things. I mean, that's already, you know, saying it wrong. Things is already taking a bunch of changing, you know, energy and putting it together and calling it a thing. I know that's going a little far, but that's what the scientists tell us. There's moments when that's our actual experience. It's true. It's true. There's moments when you can be in retreat, sitting and really there isn't a mouth. You know, there isn't a body. But you know, most of the time, it's like the magic eye. That's one level of how things are. It's constant flux. But it's useful, the conventional perception, that even though this body is in constant flux, I still can recognize it when I get up in the morning. When I walk out of here, I don't get it confused with Viranyani's body, you know. I know what I'm supposed to do, she knows where she's supposed to go. We can go and eat and find her mouth, you know. It all works. <laughs> but just because there's the perception, if we re- of 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 lastingness, it's at the deepest level not accurate. And so knowing that it's a convention, it's a useful convention. We don't need to be afraid of the perception of no self or the perception of impermanence. We're still going to be able to function because it's only the way things already are. The only thing that goes away is that burden, that we're dragging around of me, 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 and everything about me and every thought and every sound and everything that happens is my whole history back to when I was in the second grade or before I was born. Everything. I mean, who needs all of that? The sense of our personality being so important. The sense of our having to fix ourselves, change this personality, get a better one, not or at least... At least put on such a good mask that no one can tell how really disgusting you truly are, right? How much of our time do we do that? Okay, I got sidetracked there. <laughs> <Right>. <laughs> In the perception of impermanence, on this level that the Buddha is speaking of. And it doesn't have to be on that level all the time. It doesn't even hardly most of the time. But just let in as you're walking around that sight is impermanent. It's constantly changing. Just walk out of here and you see a plant and then you see the window and then you see a shoe and then you see the hall and then you see the light. and then You know, it's constantly changing. You don't have to flip out and get all trippy about it. But you can just notice that. Thoughts are constantly changing, moods are constantly changing, physical sensations are constantly changing. How does it work that this seeing, this perception of impermanence starts to erode the habit of sakaya ditti, of creating sense of self? What it does is when we see how things actually are, the clinging that arises due to our confusion, our inaccurate perception, it just drops away. Sort of like my friend in the house in Switzerland. As soon as she knew what was true, the aversion and the clinging was gone. The view was gone. You don't have to abandon it. It just goes away. There's um, a model that the Buddha uses a lot in terms of, as uh, you could call it like three movements in an unfolding process of insight, where we recognize more accurately, then we begin to see, in terms of the six senses, in terms of the five aggregates, the gratification, for example, in seeing. We recognize the gratification, the danger, and the escape in terms of any of these aspects of our experience. He uses this all the time. So, for instance, in terms of seeing, the gratification in seeing a pleasant sight is is the pleasure and the joy that arises in dependence on that. That's the gratification. The danger, obviously, when we see that it's always changing, the danger is that it's subject to change. It's unsatisfactory. We can't place any lasting sense of self or hope for happiness that experience. And the escape is the abandonment of desire and lust for that form, for that particular experience. It's not that we have to get rid of anything. We don't have to get rid of our personalities. We don't have to get rid of pain in the body. We don't even have to get rid of anger. But what goes away when we recognize accurately is the desire and lust for whatever the particular experience is. It's that word that's often translated as disgust, nibbida, but disenchantment is really a better translation. And just to describe how that works, when we see accurately, oh, this can bring me this pleasant feeling, this brings a moment of pleasure, and then it's gone. Placing all my eggs in the basket of more pleasant feeling, completely, it can't do it for me. It's not a should. It's not I'm so stupid or bad. It's like a disenchantment with pleasant feeling, for example, or seeing. With that disenchantment, we go, ah, this can't do it. Just put down the clinging. You know the description that Andy Olinsky gives of this in, in in the Insight Journal. He wrote a whole page about Nibbida. I just want to read the, the, um, the metaphor he gives. He says, knowing things directly as they really are and seeing what is impermanent as impermanent with right view. When one sees as it is with right view, then one becomes disenchanted, he says, with the aggregates, with all five aggregates. What does this mean, disenchanted? Because, as I said, as he said, it's often been translated as revulsion or disgust. And when often, when people hear that, you know, I should be developing revulsion for the five aggregates. That means, you know, revulsion for the body, for forms, revulsion for perception. No, that's that doesn't. You know, that's to us that's aversive. That doesn't sound right. Certainly. It doesn't really inspire one (laughs) too deeply. Yeah, let me work towards revulsion. But if you think of it as disenchantment, and then using this um, simile that's in the text about a dog that comes across a bone that has been sitting out like in the desert for months and months. So where it was once a really juicy bone, now it's just bleached, White and bare, the marrow's gone, is just a dried up old bone. So the dog comes running up to it, all lathering, slathering, happy, starts chewing on it, and then sees he's enchanted by the prospect of gratification as he scrapes away furiously at the bone. But when he wakes up to the fact that the bone is empty of anything that will offer him any satisfaction, he becomes disenchanted just spits it out and walks away. There's no aversion necessary in that. No revulsion. It's just, oh, this can't, isn't what I thought. Puts it down and walks away. That, I know, it does, that's actually an experience of real equanimity. The equanimity that allows us to recognize our experience ever more accurately not push it away, not distance ourselves, not have revulsion, but the clinging of wanting anything to last, of perceiving anything as me, just becomes abandoned in that moment. And more and more frequently, as the perception is accurate more and more frequently, the abandonment of the Sakaya dittī, Gets, gets a stronger, gets our loyalty in our belief and personality view really begins to weaken. But one point I want to make is, in our practice here, and not just on retreat, in daily life, I find this really personally, I often I can access this, this level of seeing, okay, seeing the moment of eye consciousness, seeing all the aggregates as impermanent, there's times when that is the level of perception, especially when we're on retreat. But there's other times when the Sakaya Ditti, you know, the perception, the the clinging, the thoughts, the view, that's all, that happened really fast and quite a while ago, and we couldn't even say what was the original um, perception that led to the view, but we wake up really caught in some personality view, you know, and it might be a really familiar one. Any of the examples I've been given, but we're really in it. Or sometimes you can't say what well, it. I'm such an angry person, and I could say all of this, or I've always been unhealthy, or Wow, I'm really doing great. Whatever it is, you know, I'm this kind of a person. I'm shy. I'm introverted. Whatever it is. Sometimes you can't say what it is, but like in daily life, I'll just start to feel really kind of contracted, and I, I look, and it's all complicated, and I can't tell what the belief is. I can't tell what the perception is. But I can tell that Sakaya Ditti is really strong right now. And that is actually enough. In that moment, rather than, oh, I'm, there's... There's eye consciousness, and there's clinging, and there's identification, and 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 I can't get there. I can't even say, is this anger? Is this fear? Is this this back to my childhood? All I can say is, wow, Sakaya Ditti feels like this. In that way that Samedo uses. And it actually is very powerful. Instead of getting in there, fighting it out, oh no, here I am being so and I want to be compassionate, I better start doing the Shinrizi mantra, I better do this, I better sit more, I better, you know, how somebody's going to fight. Wait a minute, Sakaya Ditti is like this. It's, it's not magic. I wouldn't say it's magic, but sometimes it's so powerful because just in that moment, you don't have to figure it all out. You just shifted loyalties right then from total belief in Sakaya Ditti to, oh, feels like this. Just that movement into awareness receiving Sakaya Ditti. Just another complicated, messed up sankara that's arising in this moment and it's going to pass away if I don't keep feeding it fuel. That, you don't need to be incredibly concentrated. And you don't need to be incredibly quiet and peaceful to do that. It's just to have that, that willingness to recognize, oh, Sakaya Ditti. Just to have the sense that's something that arises and passes. It's not who I am. Mm -hmm. Are we, like I said the other night, are we willing to be without self-referencing? Are we willing not to be our personality? Are we willing just to be with what is, without having our personality be the center of the show? Are we willing not to be the center of the show? Because it's peaceful. And what's interesting sometimes, sometimes we find out peace isn't really the thing we're wanting. A little more action, a little more glitziness, a little more interest a little more sense of me, basically. So I say, oh, Sakaya Ditti is like that. I mean, just in yourself, how did that sound? Really lame? It's like, oh yeah, right, right, I've got to go through life, Sakaya Ditti is like that. But you know, then what? What are we left with? Just awareness. Awareness when it's not colored by craving or delusion or fear or anger. In that moment of itself, it's pure. It's just this. Just what is in this moment. Nothing to do. Nothing to fix. Nothing to be. And it's just a moment. It's not some big explosion. It's very, as Buddha Dasa says, normal and natural. We all have many, many, many moments in a day when there's not the misperception of something as self. Many, many moments when Sakaya is not being created or clung to, they're normal, natural, and simple. So we could just, as Buddha Dasa says, generate a contentment with that. And then on the other side, notice when there is the perception of permanence, When there's the perception of self, when the thoughts are creating a view, just notice how that happens. And notice you don't have to go back and deconstruct the whole thing. At any point, we can just go, ah, it's like this. And just step out of believing that whole thing. Step out of the magic eye altogether. That's accessible to us now, just as we are don't have to wait until you're better. You don't have to wait until somehow you've rearranged everything so you can be completely enlightened. It's not some other place. It's right here, right now, no matter what's happening. Just a shifting of allegiance. I just want to close with a short quotation from Master Shen Yen. Who's a, he's a wonderful... Um, Chan, from Taiwan, from China, a wonderful Chan master. He's not so healthy now. He's really a wonderful being. He said, true liberation does not come from wanting to be liberated. In true liberation, there's nothing to want, nothing to discard, no place to go, and no place to avoid. It means not being moved by the environment Not having likes or dislikes. True liberation does not come from wanting to be liberated. So let's just sit quietly for a moment. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.